We continue our tour through John today, lesson eight, resuming at chapter three, verse 16. Good morning, and thank you for taking part in the series. I hope you're getting a lot out of it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. As we saw in the previous lesson, the immediate context of the passage is the lifting up of the bronze snake in the desert, uh, which is in the book of Numbers, a fact that not only are most Christians unaware of, but which clarifies the passage. And it's the third of these upward motions in John, consistent with the idea of being born from above. Notice that this is not a passage about how to become a Christian. 3.16 is about God's initiative to save sinful people. Sadly, it's been overtaken by Matthew 7.1 as the most popular Bible verse now, judge not. In our uh, hyper-tolerant uh, postmodern society, that's become more important because tolerance is more important than truth or virtue. Yeah, again, Jesus was lifted up just as the snake was lifted up, so we must look to him, not to ourselves, if we want to be saved. Without faith, we stand under the judgment of God. As we'll see in the next passage, there's little hope given here for those who've never heard the word of God. We continue. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the one and only Son. Let me just pause there for a second. Keep in mind the, the previous illustration, the snake bite. So if someone is bitten by the snake, they've got this venom in them, the, the problem is not, the primary problem is not that they didn't look to the bronze serpent, that they've, they've not found the cure. The underlying problem is that they've been bitten by the snake. In the same way, those who don't look to Christ, those who do not uh, receive God's salvation, uh, aren't somehow let off the hook because they're already infected with the venom of sin. Those who believe are not condemned, those who don't believe are condemned already, okay, because they've got this condition. Now, God's not being petty and saying, well, you have to do it my way or there's no, uh, no forgiveness. The point is we're, we're being destroyed by sin. We've got this infection in us. And like a doctor, well, access to the doctor is something we wish everyone has. But if we don't have the access to the doctor, it's not like, oh, well, then in that case, we're not actually ill. Everything's okay. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. All who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. What a great passage. Again, God didn't send Jesus to condemn, but to save. But this is going to require an about face, a willingness to own up to who we are, to what we've become, what we've done. The Bible talks about coming into the light. And some people prefer the darkness to the light. It's a bit painful when the blinds are open and the sun streams in and 
People hide under the covers. They hate the light so their deeds may not be exposed. And those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. So remember, light's come into the world, but the darkness has not understood it. Back to chapter 1, verse 5. And this resistance isn't just, well, some reflex reaction to light, nor is it a matter of intellectual ignorance, but of moral opposition to the truth. In other words, we're, we're fully responsible. So when we hear the truth of the gospel, a, self, a decision is required. We've got to do something. And throughout the Gospel of John, we'll see that the light shines into the lives of a number of people, and we can see how they react when the light shines in. So he's not just generalizing. Well, it is a general statement that we've just read, but uh, there are practical examples throughout. Look how the Samaritan woman responds when the light is shined into her, or the lame man in chapter 5, or the fickle crowd of chapter 6. Go through the Gospel of John with this in mind. Continuing now in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he spent some time there with them and baptized. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was abundant there, and people kept coming and were being baptized. John, of course, had not yet been thrown into prison. A few comments. Jesus' disciples are baptizing. Now, 4-2 that is, in the next chapter, will clarify that Jesus was present, probably kind of in charge or overseeing, presiding, but he was not performing the immersions personally. Kind of reminds us of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. It's not that they're not important, but we don't want people to get too attached to the baptizer. Um, The point is to be focused on God. But was this baptism um, administered by Jesus and his apostles the same as John's baptism, functionally? Well, it seems so. Because in John 7, 39, it says that the Spirit had not yet been given. The Holy Spirit wasn't conferred, wasn't made available, was not received when people came to God. Not until after Jesus had been glorified. So salvation is not finished yet, the work of salvation. And so this baptism, which is Christ-focused, just like John's baptism, because John told people to believe in the one coming after him, um, seems to have brought forgiveness, but not the Holy Spirit. Again, that was John 7, 39, kind of a key verse in the New Testament. John was baptizing in the same area, which is kind of interesting, um, as well as at Enon. Now, if real baptism was sprinkling or pouring, we might wonder, why does John tell us that the water was abundant there? I mean, why would you need abundant water if you're just, you know, using a few drops uh, on each person? But if baptism is immersion, which is what it means in Greek, then that makes sense. The incarceration of John the Baptist is just mentioned here in passing. Uh, In fact, it's mentioned only in this verse. John, of course, not yet been thrown into prison. Now, the event is found in the synoptic gospels in Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 3. Um, He's imprisoned. He goes to one of Herod's prisons, Machiris, um, because he criticized the, uh, the king for, well, for sexual immorality. Didn't go down very well. And Eventually, at Herod's birthday, after a rash promise, um, they send the, a fellow to cut off John's head. And so he meets his end. So, of course, John had not yet been thrown into prison because he's still baptized. And once he was imprisoned, he, he never got out. And when he came out, he was in two pieces. Continuing in verse 25. Now, a discussion about purification arose between John's disciples and a Jew. 
Now, when it says a Jew, again, this is probably referring to uh, a Jewish leader because John was Jewish, his disciples are Jewish, everyone's Jewish, right? So again, in the Gospel of John, the Jews usually refers to the prominent Jews, uh, leaders, that is. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the one who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you testified, he's here baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, no one can receive anything except what has been given from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. For this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Well, yet again, we're following uh, the, the chapter to another passage where John is self-effacing. He's, he's pointing his followers to Christ. Uh, this is, it kind of goes, it's a big theme in John, seeking glory for self or seeking glory for God. Jesus speaks about his own motivation. We see John repeatedly uh, pointing people to his follower, his successor, Jesus Christ. And um, it's just a thing that spiritual people do. John doesn't seem to be bothered that he's losing members, you know, right? He's losing followers. And he's actually the catalyst for their uh, moving over to follow Jesus. And he says, he has a good analogy. Um, the star of the wedding is the groom, not the groomsman. Of course, the bride's a star, but this is just an analogy. Uh, the groomsmen should be seeking no attention for themselves, but but for the groom, just like the bridesmaids focus on the bride. Uh, my brother's, uh, he has four kids, and, and the final one got married earlier this year. And of course, they're, they're bridesmaids, they're groomsmen. It would be not just inappropriate, it would be offensive if, you know, the matron of honor tried to eclipse the bride, or the groomsmen acted as though the day was all about them. That's just not the way it is. So John knew his place. He knew his place. The bridegroom's voice, um, verse 29, may refer to the groom's affirmation that he successfully consummated the marriage. There's a tradition that they would go into the tent, and then after the act, he would shout out to his friends, and everyone would be happy. It could refer to that. Um, little hard for us to understand at such a cultural distance, but in Jewish culture, it makes sense. Anyway, this is the purpose of all Christian leaders, isn't it? To point others to the Lord, not to make them dependent on themselves. And once again, I would point us back to 2 Corinthians 4, 5. Uh, we preach Christ, you know, not ourselves, but Christ, and we're just servants. And then in verse 30, as I said, probably my favorite verse in the chapter, um, let me read again. He must decrease, I must decrease. Look, I know when I when I take time to pray, I'm more likely to have that attitude. This morning I was out uh, walking by the Atlantic and the old Spanish fort here in St. Augustine. I have to get away, get away from the computer, uh, get away from conversations and all my to-do lists and everything and just get out and ideally in nature, and then realize I'm small. I'm really not that important, um, but I can do some important things with God. Uh, I like the, those Greek words, auxanein, which is grow larger, elatustai, grow smaller. Um, those are special words because they're used in astronomy. 
are used of rising stars and setting stars. Auxanen is like the English word augment, right? So as John's star was setting, Jesus's star was rising. And this was not a source of anxiety to John. Um, it seems to be more like a source of joy, which is quite amazing. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks about earthly things. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, yet no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted his testimony has certified this, that God is true. He whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has placed all things in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever disobeys the Son will not see life, but must endure God's wrath. Now that's the end of the chapter. A few more comments before we pray. So the testimony of Christ is valid, and those who accept it certify that God's word is true, or this says that God is true. He's uh, reliable. He's, he's not misleading in any way. The one who comes from heaven is Jesus. Now, it, it's a fascinating uh, fact, and it would be a little bit off the subject here, but Jesus says he's come down from heaven, 313, but no one has gone up to heaven. So technically, no one's in heaven until the resurrection and the judgment day. But Jesus has come down from heaven. Again, we need to realize our place. We're not going to be exalted. We're not going to be going to heaven until uh, Jesus returns. So he's the one who's come down from heaven. Christ speaks the word of God. He's received the spirit without measure. There's a lot of controversy. What does that mean, without measure? What are measures of the spirit? Well, I'm not sure I understand it. But to me, these words seem to be saying that Jesus was spiritual, completely spiritual, completely connected with the Father, completely true in his life and words. And there's a, an old Jewish reference on this. Um, uh, Rabbi Aha said this, The Holy Spirit who rests on the prophets rests on them only by measure. So maybe that means, maybe that's the degree of the spirituality or the revelation or the intensity. Maybe it's quality, maybe it's quantity, but there's some limitation to it. Whereas here, as uh, John, the, the evangelist tells us, uh, Jesus was given the spirit without measure. If we don't accept the words of God, we're under the wrath of God. And that's because all authority has been given to him. To reject Christ is to commit the worst sin, for one has cut off the only source of salvation. I have a, a final thought I'd, I'd like to leave with us um, before we pray. And that is, can I make the words of 3.30 into a prayer and then say it with all my heart? Those words, he must increase, I must decrease. Do, do we really want ourselves to decrease? I'd like to share something with you from a very famous prayer. It's a prayer for humility uh, from a traditional prayer book. Sometimes I feel, because for me it's harder to pray than to read, harder to open up and express myself than to study. I find it helpful to, to follow uh, prayers that are, are written out already. I used to make fun of that practice when I was a young Christian, maybe because of my upbringing in the traditional church, but um, I have a bit of a different view now. Prayer for humility. Oh Jesus, Meek and humble of heart, hear me. 
from the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being extolled, of being honored, of being praised, of being preferred to others, of being consulted, of being approved, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being humiliated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being despised, of being rebuked, of being neglected, of being forgotten, of being ridiculed, of being wronged, of being suspected, of being injured, deliver me, Jesus. That others may be esteemed more than I, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be chosen and I set aside. That others may be praised and I unnoticed. That others be holier than I, provided that I may become holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. And I find that beautiful prayer for humility, which I'll put in the notes with this podcast, okay, in case you want to read it over yourself. I find that to be very similar to the attitude of John the Baptist, and it's like an expansion of John 3.30. Dear Lord, please enable us to take every noble thought and humble expression of John the Baptist, of Christ, of anyone in Scripture, and make it our own prayer for humility. Um, we have our own ideas. We are willful and stubborn. Uh, we know too well that um, even though we may be Christians, there are parts of us that that want to just live for, live for the moment and live for self. Help us to be so dazzled by the greatness of Jesus, to realize our own smallness in your eyes, that we can truly appreciate your love, um, understand your word clearly, and, and live it. Amen.